the world, the common denominator that we all have had to do is deal with who is Jesus. Um, because he is, there's no doubt that he existed, that he had a life. He's the most probably verifiable person in history. Um, uh, a man born into a Jewish family of Middle Eastern descent. A man who became very well known in his teaching uh, and in his actions. And then a man who was crucified by a uh, combination of this religious elite that envied him and a Roman Empire that was paranoid about him. And, and then from there, we're all across the board on what we're going to do with Jesus or what we, kind of how we relate to him or did he rise again or not. But, but kind of that common denominator, we have this assured baseline that he existed. And this historically happened to him that he died on a cross and then from there we're kind of on our own to decide for ourselves. But um, I, I don't, at any level, claim authority of knowing how cultures relate to Jesus. I don't claim that authority, but it, it does seem from just, I'll call it intense observation, uh, that especially in our American culture, um, I think it's safe to say that pretty much everyone on some level likes Jesus or, or, or doesn't really have a problem with him. There's, there's plenty of problems with Christians and churches, but virtually nobody has an issue with Jesus himself. Um, there's a famous quote, I think it's um, attributed to Gandhi, uh, who, who says, I, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians, because they're not very much like your Christ. And, and I think in, in the line, that kind of captures, captures modern thought in the last couple hundred years, that especially kind of Western civilization, American civilization, that um, Rarely do you ever see an, a direct attack on Jesus himself. And the reason is because the things he's most known for is, listen, this man who came kind of up from um, uh, kind of know-nothing background, uh, challenged the status quo. He had a heart for the least of these, for those who were marginalized and oppressed. He was a very compelling teacher. Anywhere he went, he drew crowds. So he was at least somewhat interesting to listen to. Um, he had this high moral ground. Uh, that seemed to be distinguish him from the rest of the people of the day. So you kind of look at all that, you go, well, what's not to like? And, and yet, um, I think where things might go astray is that um, the perception of Jesus gets twisted to where people like him, at least that image of him, but don't really like him for what he himself claimed to be. And whether it's images you see of Jesus, like on the internet or online, of what he looks like or what he was about, he's he kind of, let's be honest, he's kind of soft, right? Uh, and, and he's kind of just, uh, is like perceived as this guy, just kind of walks around and just kind of affirms everything he sees and, and, and just kind of brings a lot of love into the world. Um, and he would never actually call anybody out for wrongdoing or a wrong way of thinking, that he just kind of comes and is going to affirm whatever kind of lifestyle that they want. And I think that is, by and large, an image, whether or not people would articulate that, of Jesus. And, and the problem with that, if that's all that Jesus was, um, no one would have ever killed him. You don't kill someone who's just healing people and teaching interesting things. But they killed him. Jesus was crucified. And the reason, in large part, is because Jesus did say some hard things. And he said some things that tended to offend some really important people. Um, and, and he was where he needed to be. Not always. All those things we talked about, he did do those things. And we should focus and highlight that. But he was where he needed to be confrontational in calling out wrong ways of thinking or wrong ways of living. 
and this doesn't get much press today of like there's a right and there's a wrong because we are in a very relativistic society, a growingly secular culture where people are very wary of deciding things are right or wrong. Like the whole idea of truth is as obscure today as it ever has been across history, just, just what is truth. And, and so here's what is very much we hear more and more of that there's a right for you, but then you see there's a right for me. And that might be wrong for you. I, I get that, respect that, but that might not be wrong for me. And to be honest, like, I understand why that's an attractive mentality. Like, that, that seems very um, attractive to us, that we can get, become the decision makers, and we decide what's right and what's wrong for us, and then you can go ahead and decide what's right and wrong for you. But everything's relative. Well, there is no wrong. And, and, and the problem with that is that if we we're all honest... Um, that doesn't work in every area of life. In fact, most areas it doesn't. Um, like even insignificant things. Like later today, there's two playoff football games. I don't know if you wear. I mean, I probably won't watch them, but you probably will. Um, but I mean, if you're a football fan, this is like the best weekend of the year. Like two yesterday, two today. And you know what? They can't decide. Um, well, you said you won, but I, I mean, I, I think we won. I think we played better. No, no. Like today, there's, there's gonna be a winner. There's gonna be a loser. Everyone accepts that. Um, you are either married or you're not right now, today. You can't be both. And we would accept that. Like, there is many things in our era where we say there's a right and there's a wrong. And, and, and then we see in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to say, no, you're wrong about something. And the people that he's talking to, and he's going to give correction. It's going to provide us some insight that um, is going to eventually lead us to a place where we see where's the fullness of life found. Where's the fullness of life? Where's it come from? So let's go and read together. You can follow along as I read aloud. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Well, let's unpack this passage and kind of get all our pieces in place as we see, well, what, what's he actually saying and what's he mean? And we're going to start with the opposition. Who, who's the opposition here? So um, we've been seeing in recent passages in the Gospel of Mark that the religious elite are all taking their turns at Jesus, and they're taking their swings. And this is all happening during Holy Week, the week leading up to Jesus' death. We're in Tuesday. Tuesday is a very confrontational day, apparently, um, and it's just been rapid fire. First, it was the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and they questioned him on authority. Then, it was the Pharisees and Herodians questioning Jesus on politics and tax policy. 
And now it's the Sadducees questioning him on theology. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we are formally introduced to this group called the Sadducees. And so I want to unpack kind of who they are. There's this, they're another group within the religious ranks of the Jewish people. And I think, I would say, they're the most unique of them all. As Mark told us, they are most known for their theological belief that there's no resurrection. Like, right away, that should be like, that's kind of strange. Like, religious people, no afterlife. There's no resurrection of the body after you die. They, they held this doctrine of an annihilation which means uh, the soul died with the body and there's no life after death. You just stop existing. And their reasoning flowed from their belief that only the books of Moses, which are the first five books of the Bible, were authoritative, known as the Pentateuch. And according to them, the Pentateuch never mentions a resurrection. And so it, since it never mentions a resurrection, therefore it doesn't exist. And the Sadducees were a very small minority group in number amongst all the Jews. But, and this is important, they held a majority of power. Very small group in their beliefs, but majority of the power in Jerusalem um, over the capital, over the temple at this time. So um, hang with me here. We've talked a little bit about this in the past, but just to lay it out, um, in Jerusalem, there was a governing body of Jews called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin made up of 72 men, and they ruled over all the religious, all the civil authority over the Jewish people and the temple and the priestly orders, and the majority of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. And as you might imagine, they were very closely aligned with Rome, because Rome allowed them to have all this power. So Rome is the empire that oversaw this region, but they gave the Sadducees the religious and civil power over their people. And so the Sadducees loved this current setup. They loved the status quo because, think about this, Rome provides the political stability. Nobody's going to come invade them because Rome's the most powerful empire at the time. So their land's protected, and they get all the power within Jerusalem over religious matters and civil matters, which is what they care about. So you put that all together, of course they don't believe in a resurrection, because that means they have no need for a Messiah. What do they want to be saved from? They love their lives right now. There's no need to be saved from sin because there's no resurrection, there's no afterlife, so what do you need to be saved from? And they have their animal sacrifices in the temple to kind of handle the status quo to keep in right standing with God for now. And they definitely do not want a political Messiah like some of the Pharisees are looking for because they love Rome. They want to stay linked with Rome. So that's the setup of the opposition. And, and, and maybe you're sitting there and thinking, you're kind of like a mind like me trying to like think this through, and you're like, I imagine the Sadducees had to be at real odds with the Pharisees. Like that is a huge theological divide. And, and the majority of the Jewish people beyond that, like they all wanted to be free from Rome. Now the ruling governing body wanted to stay with Rome. And besides, no afterlife? Like there's just kind of a strange belief. And you would be right. In fact, we're told throughout the Bible that these two groups really did have a lot of friction between them. Um, way later, in Acts 23, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, and he knows this division because he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Or he was. So he plants the seed to divide them. We read in Acts 23, verse 8, For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, which will come up again later in the passage, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So, huge divide amongst the governing religious elite, amongst the Jews. And yet, here's the point, we see again, despite major disagreements, they are united in their desire to destroy Jesus. Different reasons, but same desire. 
It's like today. Cowboys fans and Giants fans are all rooting against the Eagles, all right? There's a lot of issues between Cowboys fans and Giants fans, but today they're on the same front. They want to see the Eagles go down, okay? Um, I know that's two football references in one day. I'm sorry. The staff will let me know my quote is done for the month, but that might help you picture it a little bit better. Different reasons, big divide, but they're united. They want this guy gone. And it just goes to affirm, as we talked about up front, Jesus was not some just soft, go-with-the-flow Savior that's just good with everything and good with everyone. Because you know what? You don't try and tear down someone like that. You don't kill someone like that. They wanted him out. And so they are just rapid fire trying to expose him, trying to discredit him. So that's the opposition. Second, the riddle. They essentially give him a riddle in an effort to discredit him as this kind of clueless teacher with bad theology. And so they give him this, um, while very improbable, it's not impossible situation. And it's important to kind of unpack this even before because they reference something that's going to be called the, the Levirate marriage or Levirate marriage. And the earliest traces of this go all the way back to Genesis 38, but it is a law that Moses gave to the people of Israel in the Pentateuch. And so I want to read you what this law says that they're referencing it's on the screen, it's at Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." If you have never seen that before, you'd be like, that's in the Bible? Like, that's, that's just kind of strange. Like, I'm glad that law is not binding on the church today. Um, that's not in our membership covenant, all right? And just tell you that up front. Um, but the reason for this law, as with many of the laws that were laid out by Moses to Israel as they formed into a nation, the reason, hear me, was to protect the most vulnerable among them. In that time of history, if a woman's husband died and they had no children, she was virtually helpless and powerless as a widow under the constructs of their culture. And the dead man's name would be lost forever in Israel, which was a big deal. So this is a law of provision, as strange as might seem in our 21st century minds. God providing for someone who needs help. It was a social policy that helps to boost the least of these. Okay, this law puts forward a God who provides, who sees those who everyone else overlooks, who acts to step into that space. And so essentially, this is a provision of biblical social justice. And they use this as a launching pad to set up an improbable yet not impossible riddle. They say, Jesus, there's a man. And this man dies, tragically, and he leaves his wife with no children, but this man had six brothers, and each of them, following this rule, marry this woman in succession, one at a time, but they each die before any child is born. Then, in the resurrection, which they don't believe in, who's, who's he married to? So think about this. They've probably been thinking about this for so long, cooking up in their minds to go to Jesus. They think, we got him. This is the argument against the resurrection in their minds. Which brother is she married to? So Jesus, you handled the chief priests and you handled the Pharisees and Herodians, but you can't hang with the Sadducees. What say you, Jesus? 
And here's where things get very interesting. Um, We have seen all throughout the Gospel of Mark, when he gets confronted, his responses vary based on the situation. Uh, We've seen him just directly give a question back of his own. Um, We've seen him just enter into a parable and be like, wow, that's an interesting direction you went there. We've seen him say, I'm not answering that, and go home. But this time is the only time we see with the Sadducees the most direct and confrontational response of them all. And he's going to counter first and address what's the real issue here beyond this riddle, surface-level riddle. And by the way, I'll answer that in a second, but what's the real issue? And that gets us to third, the problem. We had the opposition, we got the riddle, now we got the problem. What's the problem? And you notice how Jesus bookends his response. He says, is this not the reason you're wrong? And then he ends it in verse 27, you are quite wrong. Like, you, you, are, you are wrong. Like, there's a right and there's a wrong when it comes to belief, especially this belief, and you, sir, are wrong. No ambiguity. But he hits the, the issue beneath the issue. What's the real problem here? He says this, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Think about the context here. Think about where they are. Think about who he's talking to. This is a major indictment to say the ruling body of Jews just outside the temple and says, you don't know the scriptures and you don't even know the power of God. I mean, that's like saying to the CEO of Walmart, you don't know retail and you don't know consumerism. That's like saying to the manager of the Yankees, you don't even know baseball. Dang it, third sports reference. All right, I'm done, I'm done. (laughs) The foundational problem is not the resurrection, although he'll handle that in a second, but their inability to know the inerrant holy scriptures and then the God of those scriptures. And I find it interesting that when the challenge posed to him was a theological one, it's one where Jesus is the quickest to counter with a haymaker of his own. And we should pay careful attention to that. And the reason is our lives... And our thoughts and our desires and our words and our actions that make up our lives, every single decision, even the small decisions, are all shaped in part, in large part, by what we think about God. And that is true of everyone in this room, regarding whether you believe in the God of the Bible or you have another God you believe in, or if you believe in no God at all. The foundation of people's lives is what they think about God. A.W. Tozer was famous for saying that, uh, that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. And even at the smallest levels, if you think this through, I think you'd agree it's true. So let's say you're at work and you're tempted to just fudge the numbers a little bit, just a little bit, but it's going to give you a much better profit or it's going to make you a lot more money. It's just a little thing and it's going to pay off big for you. Whether or not you do that is first dependent upon what do you think about God. If you're sitting at home alone at night and you're scrolling on your phone, what websites you're going to go to, the things you're going to let yourself look at, the things you're going to let yourself read, is going to matter based upon what you think about God. There is no decision we're going to make that does not have it at its foundational premise, what do we think about God? That's going to lead to what you're going to decide or not. We can't get away from it. And here's what Jesus is laying before us, and it's simple, but it's so important. How you understand who God is matters. And the question just beneath that is how you come to understand what you believe about God matters. 
Um, I, I say somewhat often, everyone's a theologian. We don't like the word theology and doctrine, but we all have it. Even if we wouldn't say we have it, we all have a belief about God, even if that belief is there is no God. That's a theological statement and a theological foundation. And that belief or lack thereof is what will shape us and our lives more than anything else, which connects Jesus to this kind of crucial point of the power of God and who you think God is matters. And then attached to that, what you think about the word of God matters because that is where we get the special revelation of who God is. And and the Bible, isn't it true that the Bible has simultaneously across history been the most important book to reveal the way to life, the fullness of life, while also being the most dangerous tool that wicked men and wicked women have used to justify their wickedness? This is a good book, and it is the most dangerous book in the world, especially when it's misused. And to not know the scriptures, either to just completely neglect it or to abuse it, they both lead to destruction for those involved. And this is why Jesus would get most angry in the Gospels, not towards those uh, we would call quote-unquote sinners, right? Not those that everyone said, like, man, their lives were deplorable. Like, Jesus never got the most angry with them. You know who he got most angry with? The most religious in this society, the ones who were considered the elite, who lorded over the people using the scriptures and misusing them. That's why he says, you're wrong. You're quite wrong. And these men, Sadducees, were outwardly religious. They were upright men of God, but inwardly and truly, they were functional atheists who didn't know God and just sought to serve themselves. And we need to be very careful here and make sure we, um, from time to time, look ourselves in the mirror because it's possible in the name of religion to fool others and come across as someone who is righteous, someone who other people would look up to while inwardly just being our own God who answers to nobody. Or, just as common, and this is, I feel like a boat I fell into, It's possible to fool yourself into thinking that God exists, the God of the Bible exists, but he would never actually say anything to you about your life. Like, you're okay, because you've seen some things, and I've experienced some things, and and, and, and I know what I need to do and what I not need to know, and and God's just kind of my hype man, you know what I mean? Just kind of the wind behind my sails, like, yeah, you're fine with that, you're fine with that, because you got that knowledge. And all the while, I'm just justifying sin as a re- instead of repenting of it and re- relying solely upon his grace. And so I want to be as clear as I can. Um, none of us have every doctrine on lockdown. None of us know everything there needs to know about the Bible. None of us has every single decision or belief right. And I'm sure we are all going to be more than a little surprised at one level or another when we get to glory. But that does not mean that there are certain truths in the Bible that are crystal clear. Like there are truths in the Bible that are crystal clear. And we can have full conviction of. Even if we don't know everything, we can know what the Bible is very clear about. Doctrines where we can say, yes, there is a right and there is a wrong. And it really means something based on what you say about it. And so Jesus to the Sadducees says, listen, your, your, your riddle, 
Um, your riddle exposes the fact that you know neither the word nor the power of God because if you did, you would have never even asked that. But then, I love this, he just goes and answers their question anyway. He says, here's the real issue, but let me go ahead and just address that while, while we're here. So fourth, he gives the answers. And there's two answers. And it's regarding the issues of marriage and resurrection. And both are wrong beliefs that flow from the real problem of not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. And first on marriage, he says again, for when they rise from the dead, they being the woman and the seven brothers in this hypothetical scenario, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus blows up their false assumption of the afterlife that they then would reject. So the common belief amongst the religious elite, um, amongst the Jews, was that the afterlife was just a better, more idealized version of the world we know today. And it had full continuity with the current world, just better. It was ideal. And so this is what the Pharisees often believed, what the majority of the Jews believed, and then um, the Sadducees would reject it. But he says you don't know the scriptures because the Bible does not cast the resurrection as just better, but new, entirely new, new heavens, new earth, a restoration and recreation of the entire cosmos, starting with your life when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that then includes, one day, our new resurrected bodies. This is uh, what Jesus has done three times already in the Gospel of Mark. He's predicted his own death and his own resurrection three times, remember? This is the new body that Paul will speak of in 1 Corinthians 15. That will be entirely new and separate from our earthly bodies. Okay, so the way the Bible puts forward the resurrected bodies is not just you better, okay? It's not you with a six-pack, all right? It, it's an entirely new you that cannot and will not break down in any way. Revelation 21, very end of your Bible, says uh, this vision that John gives us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. Not just better, entirely new cosmos. Some continuity, but not just an improved version of what we see now. And that is the context that we're told there will be no marriage in heaven at least not as we know and experience marriage on earth. Uh, there will be relationships, there will be community, but there will be no marriage. Jesus says, rather, we will be like angels. What do you mean by that? Primarily, he means that we will not be in a place where we're going to procreate, and we're not going to die, and we're not going to be bearing witness because all evil will be gone from the world. We will be in an eternal, perfect relationship with God and one another. And so in that way, there will no longer be a purpose for marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. Because, And this is not necessarily a sermon on marriage, but the Bible is clear, and we've talked about this before, that marriage's primary purpose is to be a picture of the covenant-keeping love between God and his people. So every marriage ought to be a picture of the gospel. And every single one, for those of us who are married, is imperfect. Can I get an amen on that? four of you, all right, have imperfect marriages. I'm glad for the rest of you. But like, here's the thing. We're all imperfect in our marriages, but we strive for it. We strive to be a picture of the gospel. And in the context of a marriage is where God has designed and called us to be fruitful and multiply, to raise up generation after generation of disciples of Jesus Christ. So when the time comes to the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth, there will not be that purpose for marriage. 
So let's just talk about that for a minute. Because based upon your experience in marriage or in seeing other marriages, that statement is either a huge disappointment or a complete relief. Based upon your experience or your seeing of marriages. But I want to, seriously, if your first inclination is disappointment, like, really? Why can't we just be... Can we be best friends? I mean, can we, is there something a little different than everybody else? Like, I can't even picture that. We won't be married in heaven. Like, I would just say this. First of all, I'm glad you're disappointed because that means on some level that you love your marriage, that you enjoy your spouse, that you choose to love one another, that you're showing each other grace and mercy. Like, I want people to be disappointed at that because we want gospel-centered, healthy, robust marriages at Grace Church. And I know there's nothing that my wife and I love more than just seeing and hearing and being around older couples who've been married 50, 60 years and seeing more in love than ever. Like, that's just a picture and a testimony for us. We're like, Lord willing, if he's going to let us live that long, we want to be that way. But if you think it through, that disappointment is not rooted in the fact that your hopes for heaven are too high, but your hopes for what heavens are going to be like is too low. Because the relationships in heaven will be perfect. And they will bring ultimate joy and fulfillment, not based on whether or not we have a spouse, but based upon our bodily reunion with Jesus Christ. And we will experience glorified bodies. I don't know what they're going to look like. But we also are told we're going to maintain our unique identities. And whatever pleasure emotionally and physically we receive from earthly relationships, it will be transcended beyond our wildest imaginations because Jesus will be there. And there will be a community. And this is why the Bible is clear, and Jesus and Paul are both examples, that those who don't marry here in this world, they're not missing out. Because there is no advantage to being singled or married in the resurrection. And I think that's important because no one should fall into the trap of believing that marriage is what we need to be ultimately fulfilled in this life. So I said a word to the married couples. Let me now say a word to our single men and women here. Um, I would encourage you, if you have a desire to be married, to pursue being married and encourage you in that pursuit. Because that's not wrong to have that desire. But it's not going to be the end-all, be-all if it happens. In fact, I would go as far to say, maybe you can bait me on this, that the relationships that are most linked between the new heavens and the new earth and the old heavens and the old earth is friendship more than marriage. The relationships that are more linked is probably friendship more than marriage. The love and fulfillment we find in friendships, especially within the body of Christ. And that should signal to us today that singleness is not brokenness. Singleness is not incompleteness. And it's possible to feel fully loved and cared for in this world as a single, just like it's possible in this fallen world to still feel alone and neglected in a marriage. So, long explanation to Jesus' answer. Um, Will there be marriage in heaven? No. Not as we view it here. But as we begin to wrap up, it's a no to marriage, but it's a big yes to the resurrection itself. And I love how Jesus gets this point across because he goes to their own turf, the Sadducees' own turf, to prove it. He corrects their misbelief by going to the books of Moses, the only books the Sadducees say are authoritative, and he shows that it's there. He says, have you not read 
in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. I don't know why. I love that Jesus just said, you know the one about the bush, right? Because if you grew up in church, like, you know the one about the bush. And, like, that's how we talk about it. Like, you know that story about the bush? Like, you know, I think it was a few weeks ago, my four-year-old came home. Like, oh, we learned about the bush. I'm like, yeah, I know what that is. And he's talking about Exodus chapter 3 when God approached Moses to equip him and raise him up to be the one that was going to go free his nation from Egypt. But let me quickly explain Jesus' reasoning here, and then we'll talk about why, does this, why should this shape our lives today. Exodus 3, 6, God approaches Moses and he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, and he uses present tense. I am the God of Abraham, not I was. And that's significant because when he is speaking to Moses, those guys have been dead for a few hundred years. And yet God is still their God. Because while they might be dead in body, they are very much alive in spirit. And our God, from the beginning, is a covenant-keeping God who enters into eternal covenants with his people. So Jesus' belief in the afterlife. This is also the view Peter and Paul will have into the early church. And still the view the church has today is the afterlife is really a two-stage ending. Stage one, when you die like we all will, your soul continues to exist in what the Bible will call the heavenlies. And you're joyful and you're alive with God immediately when you die if you are saved by grace through faith. But you're still waiting for and longing for stage two, what the Bible would call the resurrection. When the second, after the end of the age, when you will receive a new body, when you will exist eternally in a physical world, with a physical body, without sin, without brokenness, and Christ will be all in all for all of eternity. All right, stage one, soul without the body. You're not just asleep. You're not on a cloud playing a harp. You're not bored. You're really alive with God. You're really joyful. You're really experiencing communion with him. But then stage two, soul reunited with a resurrected body and a renewal of the whole cosmos. So Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees about stage one. God, right now, is the God of the living, meaning the souls of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all who have believed in him, they are alive, they are with God. And if that is true, then the resurrection is a guaranteed future for them and all who are his people. So Sadducees, you're quite wrong. And when it comes to theology, as we wrap up, what you believe about God and what you believe about his word, there are things Jesus would be quick to say. There is a right and there is a wrong. And there's not, it's not an overstatement to say in context with this very passage that some of those decisions have eternity hanging in the balance. And Jesus is exclusive here. And he's not doing it out of arrogance. He's not doing it lording over anybody. He's doing it out of love that there is a way to experience the fullness of life. There is one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. So the most loving thing he could do was to be clear in his theology, to correct wrong, to proclaim the God of the living who would all hear. And when you say you're the God of the living, you're saying you are somebody's deliverer, helper, 
It's why if you're ever stuck on the side of the road in a remote area and somebody came and helped you out, what do you say? You say, you're a godsend. What, what do you mean when you say that? You say, you delivered me, you helped me when I could not help myself. Jesus is the ultimate godsend. And it's in Christ that God makes good on his promise. I will deliver you. I will be the one who provides salvation and it will never end. And then we get to the end of the book of Revelation and to tie this all together, he says there's not going to be marriage like you think of marriage now. But we get this picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus as the groom, the church as his bride, fully provided for. We don't know everything what it's going to be like, but what we do know, it's going to be great. It's going to be in perfect covenant-keeping relationship, and death will not do us part. Do you believe this? Do you depend your life upon it? For today is the day of salvation. Let's pray.